You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 16. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool, you you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you, you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely, because, of my, because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become a food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from all the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their great grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. This is the word of the Lord. For our New Testament reading, uh, rather than 1 Timothy, turn to Titus. Titus chapter 1. Titus 1 verse 5 through chapter 2 verse 15. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. 
For there, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So, Father, we come now into your house um, to, to hear you speak by your word, to understand your word, to seek to love your word and trust your word and obey your word. And we do all of this not because of our own righteousness, not because of our own strength, but on account of the grace and the mercy given to us in Jesus. Um, that, that because of that grace, we trust that you're wiser than we are, that your ways are better than our ways. And we should trust what you say and do what you say and love what you say. So help us to that end now this morning. In your name we pray, amen. I want to begin this morning um, as we continue our, uh, our study of the, the theme of authority or power. Um, uh, the very first week we talked about just the overarching idea, um, which is actually, it's the overarching idea and it's the foundational idea um, to the very nature of authority, which is the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, that there is um, in the center of the universe a throne and on that throne um, is the Lord and he reigns over all things. There's not one square inch of reality over which he does not have authority. There's not one person on earth, whether they acknowledge it or not, who is not subject to his authority, his reign, his power, his glory. Um, and, and that serves as the foundation for every other kind of authority that exists in the world. Um, and then last week we talked about how that authority is then extended or exercised 
um, through the civil magistrate or through the, um, the, the government. And that God has foundationally established three different um, kind of fundamental authorities in the world, in creation, um, through which his authority is exercised. Um, and all three of those authorities are answerable to God. And last week we talked about how um, God has established in honor a particular role um, for the civil magistrate, for presidents, for, for senators, for judges, um, that they, uh, they represent um, God's authority for the sake of justice, for the sake of um, pursuing and punishing evildoers, for protecting um, the, the established kind of the God-given freedoms, the God-given uh, rights, um, to, to use kind of the historical, philosophical, and theological language um, that have been given to all human beings by God, as we see in Scripture. Um, this week, we move to begin to talk about um, specifically the authority established in the second government we're looking at, which is the church. The church has established the state, he's established the church, he's established the home. Next week, we're going to talk about fathers and mothers, um, the authority that's been established there in the home. But the one thing I want to begin with today, before we kind of launch into um, the nature of authority as it's established in the church is to say to you this, like oftentimes um, as kind of modern people, the way that we think about authority um, tends to be the exact opposite of the way the Bible thinks about authority. We tend to think of authority as something to keep all joy and fun in check, right? Like everyone wants to, everyone wants to drive 100 miles an hour across Wyoming because there's no one there. And why shouldn't you be able to drive 100 miles an hour in Wyoming? And yet here comes the authority of the government. Dun, dun, dun. To kill the ability for you to have fun driving 100 miles an hour across Wyoming. And so we tend to think of all authority that way. Um, Our default is to think of um, the government, to think of... Um, even if we, if we associate um, authority, wherever we associate authority, as that authority being primarily there to keep your joy in check, um, to, to, to be kind of a, um, a stifler or a, um, you know when you get a metaphor stuck in your head and you can't think of the word? Maybe you don't know what you're talking about. I'm just going to go on. Um, uh, <laughs> to something that kind of keeps all your joy, all the things you want to do kind of held back. But but that's actually the opposite of the way um, that that the Bible describes the nature of authority. Um, There's this beautiful text in Ephesians and there it's it's talking specifically about different kinds of authorities or offices established in the church. But it's actually something that's pervasive throughout the scriptures is that authority is a means of grace. It's a good, it's a blessing. Um, That when we think about what the, the civil magistrate Maybe sometimes we have to think about what it could be, um, but, but oftentimes even we need to stop and recognize and give thanks for what it actually is. It should be a cause for us to give thanks to God. As we think today about the nature of elders and pastors and what they do, what they've been given to the church for, it should be cause for us to stop and give thanks to God. Next week, as we think about the role of husbands, as we think about the role of mothers and fathers, it should be cause for us to stop and give thanks to God. In other words, these authorities are meant to be blessings. They're meant to be conduits of God's grace, means by which, excuse me, means by which um, we experience and know the authority and the care and the rule of Christ, which is why anytime those offices are abused, 
anytime those offices uh, um, uh, are neglectful of their actual duties or try to take on other duties that aren't theirs, but why it's such a grave offense? And these uh, authorities represent the rule of Christ. They're meant to um, demonstrate for us the nature of the goodness of God's reign over all things. And so when that authority, whether that's in the church or in the state or in the home, is abused, um, this is not just um, the, the immediate harm that's caused, but actually this begins to reflect out into the world and to everyone who witnesses it, um, lies about the nature of Christ and who he is and what he's like. I mean, so I want us to begin, though, with the idea that, like, try to get your head around the idea that the authority of God is good. The authority of God as exercised through these offices is good, or at least has the potential to be very, very good. And so beginning there, we need to now, this week, take up and talk about the, the nature of the church and the authority that God has established in the church. And we have a massive obstacle to doing that. Um, we're going to get to Titus here in a minute. But before we do that, we need to lay a groundwork um, be, because the nature of kind of modern Western, particularly American Christianity, ha- has so subverted um, the, the biblical definition of what a church is and therefore what a minister is or what a pastor is um, that oftentimes when we come into conversations like this one, um, they can be massively confusing because we're presupposing things before we get into the conversation about the nature of the church, which are just plain wrong. They're, they're actually um, really troubling. And so um, what I want us to do before and as we begin is to think about the nature of the church because, um, um, because I want us to think first about how largely Christianity is treated in our day, maybe even in our city. And then secondly, transition to think, hey, what, what are the frameworks or the metaphors that are used to describe the church and her ministers in, in the Bible? And so I would propose to you that the fundamental metaphor for understanding the local church in modern American society is the fast food restaurant. Okay? That's my proposal. Um, What I mean by that is we tend to think of Christianity as um, a privatized religion that exists between you and God. And what the church exists to do is to help feed, nourish, satisfy your personal, individual relationship with God. And it does so by providing a a, a body of religious goods and services. And different churches provide different menus of religious goods and services. And where they provide the same menu items, like this church over here has preaching, and this church has preaching. This church over here has a hamburger, this church over here has a hamburger. You can choose between the restaurants based on the kind of hamburger you like. And so this one, we'll say they're the more like liberal churches, apostate churches, they serve veggie burgers. And then these churches over here, they serve brisket bacon burgers. And then this church over here serves your fast food. It's easier to digest. You can just eat it and go. In other words, we look out at the landscape of what the church is for and we look for, we find 
um, a, a bunch of fast food restaurants serving different menus. Um, and, and then we assess those churches based on our taste, based on what we think is going to best nourish us individually in our personal, privatized religious life. Um, and the church functionally exists as um, a, a, kind of, a kind of restaurant to serve you what you want. And so some churches have um, fries with lots of salt and cheese and bacon bits on them. Others only serve veggie fries. Um, some serve like ve- those veggie straw things. I guess all veggies, right? Oh, it's mocking me. Um, like in other words, the, the, the whole framework of the church is, um, it is built on, an ero- I, I believe, an erroneous understanding of what the nature of Christianity is. The Christianity is about me and God. The church then exists to kind of accentuate, help, provide me with the goods and services necessary for me to have a strong, personal, private relationship with God. And so church fundamentally becomes a matter of taste. I like this style of music. I like really pragmatic preaching. I like really doctrinal preaching. I like exegetical preaching. I like preaching that's funny. I like preaching that's short. I like preaching that's long. None of you like preaching that's short, given the fact if you've been here more than once. Um, but like, like we, we tend to then approach the church as, well, I like this kind of music. Well, I like this kind of music. Well, I like this kind of music. Or I like this kind of music. In other words, at the center of the life of the church, the center of the ministry of the church, is guess who? You. That's just... A little short read of the Bible will tell you that that's generally the wrong answer. Right? And in that model, the role of the minister or the pastor is to make sure the burgers are cooked the right way, the fries are cooked the right way, to make sure we add kind of exciting new menu items to draw a new crowd. Um, It becomes to make sure that we're putting enough salt on the fries and not too much... um, vegetables on the burger, um, to make sure the buns aren't overcooked. Like that becomes the role of the minister or the pastor is to make sure what you're getting is what you want. Now, this is not the way the church is described in the scriptures and it's not the role of the minister as it's described in the scriptures. And fundamentally underneath all of that, This idea that Christianity is fundamentally about you and your personal relationship with Jesus, um, we find out that that's not foundational to what Christianity actually is. And it's it's important that, that we allow the scriptures to describe for us what the church is, what Christianity is, and what a minister's job is, lest we misunderstand all of it. Okay. So I want to take three fundamental metaphors in Scripture before we get into Titus um, that kind of frame up for us um, what the church is and, and particularly uh, what, um, uh, what ministers are. We're going to actually begin with the question is how does it describe the role of a minister or an elder in the church? And then from that, we're going to ask a couple of questions. One, um, I, I want to show you where, there are, where these things appear in the Bible. And then I want to ask the question, what does this say about the nature of the church? And then what does this say about the role or the job of your elders or shepherds? Um, in our church, we have uh, 
myself serving as a ministering elder, and then we have a group of men serving as parish elders. Um, and when I talk about ministers or elders, that's what I'm talking about. That group of men, what are they for? What are we doing? What, what's my and our objective as a body of men in the world? So the first one is we are shepherds of someone else's flock. Common places that you see this in scripture, you see this in 1 Peter chapter 5. We're actually going to look there at the very end of our morning, uh, my sermon this morning. Set in Ezekiel, uh, really throughout the book of Ezekiel, it's kind of the fundamental metaphor uh, for the rulers or the, the, um, or the teachers of Israel. Uh, you see this in Jeremiah as well. He takes up some of those same themes from Ezekiel, and you see it in Jesus um, in uh, John's gospel, Jesus describing the nature of the church and leadership in the church as shepherds, and the, and the role is shepherding. So when you think about that, you, you, um, you, you begin to ask then the question, what is the church in that metaphor? The, the church in that metaphor is a flock of sheep that belong to someone. Now, this isn't always the most, you know, make you guys look real good, because um, sheep are smelly and dumb, I think is the typical Kind of, there's always sermon illustrations about how dumb sheep are, and then I always think that's kind of insulting to all the people, but it just is what it is. So um, I didn't make up the metaphor. God did, and so we're here. Um, so so the, the reality is, is that, that God describes the nature of Christianity or the nature of what it belong, means to belong to Jesus as belonging to a group of sheep, belonging to a flock. And that flock belongs to someone, namely Jesus, belongs to God the Father, um, there is a chief shepherd, according to Peter, that, that chief shepherd is Jesus. And then Jesus, the chief shepherd, appoints over his sheep, over his flock, under shepherds. Shepherds that answer to the chief shepherd. I've been thinking a lot, for reasons I won't go into now, um, cattle ranching recently. And in cattle ranching, um, if you're more familiar with cattle ranching than raising sheep, uh, you can think of it as you have... Uh, your cowboys, and they're wrestling the, the cows, um, and then you have the owner of the cows uh, who owns the ranch. And so that's kind of the, the metaphor or the picture um, that's used to describe the nature of the church. You are a member of a flock. You belong to God because you belong to a body. In other words, Christianity is first, primarily oriented. This doesn't mean there's not personal aspects to it. Um, but, but it means that it's first, it begins with your belonging to or your participation or your membership in a flock that belongs to God. Namely, and historically, your membership in, your participation in a local church. Now, what does this mean for the role of the minister? What does a minister do. Ministers keep the sheep together. They lead them to places where they can eat and they can drink. They care for sheep. They go and seek after lost sheep. They keep an eye out and fight against and kill wolves. So the role of a minister is not primarily to meet individual needs. It's to care for and shepherd and always have in view um, the flock that God has put in their charge to protect that flock, to keep them together, to keep them moving in the direction that the owner of the ranch wants us to move. 
to find the route, to care for the sheep, to make sure there's things to eat, to discipline the sheep, to, to, to bring them back in lines. Like sheep tend to kind of wander off down a trail. They're like, don't go down that trail. There's like a bear. And so we're going to come back over here to where the rest of the sheep are, to go after the sheep, to bring them back, to care for them, to carry them when necessary, to nourish and care for the flock that does not belong to them. In shepherding, you always give an account to the owner of the sheep for what happens to all the sheep. So if a sheep goes missing, you have to account for that to the owner of the sheep. This is why um, in Hebrews 13, it's talking about the role of uh, ministers. It's talking to the the members of this church saying, um, it tells them to submit to your rulers, um, particularly to those who've been given authority over your ministers, as to those who will give an account to God. That is a shepherding image there. It is the fact that um, we, are, your elders, will stand before God one day and God will ask us, demand of us an accounting for how we cared for, led, shepherded the people that God has entrusted to our care. So that's the first. What is the church? The church is a flock. It's belonging to a flock. It's not just the fact that you're a sheep. It's you're a sheep that belongs to a flock It belongs to God that's led by or cared for by under shepherds. Second, you were stewards of someone else's vineyard. This is um, a major theme for both Jesus and Isaiah. So in this metaphor, what is the church? The church is a vineyard, a vineyard that exists to bear fruit, good fruit, glorious fruit, um, fruit that should be nourishing to the nations, leaves that should bring healing to the nations um, and should bring profit or glory to the owner of the vineyard. And so what is a shepherd? What does a shepherd do as a steward of someone else's vineyard? Well, we're there to prune, we're there to water, we're there to feed, we're there to build a trellis on which the vine can grow. A trellis designed by God. In other words, we're to build a structure in the church that provides care for God's people. We're to make sure and tend to the health of the vine and we're to, and we're to see to it that the vine is bearing the right kind of fruit I mean, if that fruit doesn't go to our profit, but goes to the glory of God. Third metaphor from scripture. And Paul uses this one in 1 Corinthians. Jesus uses this in his famous story of the house built on sand or built on the rock. And that is, um, ministers are builders of houses. So Paul talks about um, how he came and he laid a foundation and then somebody else came and built the walls. He uses a different metaphor in his letter to the Corinthians explaining um, uh, that all these houses are going to be tested in, in the coming days. He's anticipating the persecution that's going to be coming from Rome. And he's essentially saying the houses that we've built, these churches, these communities that we've built, they're going to be tested by fire. They're going to be tested by persecution. And we're going to see what they were built from, what they were built out of. If they're built out of gold, if they're built out of precious stones, if they've built, in other words, out of things, um, um, out from the word of God itself, then when that fire comes, those houses will stand. But if they've built on, on, on something else, if they've been built on hay and straw, um, is the metaphor he uses, that when that fire comes, the house will be burned up. He says, and you, talking about the ministers who built those faulty houses, built Houses, built churches, not founded on, not growing out from the word of God, but growing out from other things, weaker things, things that God didn't give them to build with. You might be saved, 
but you're going to watch your people perish. So he describes the, the, the role or the identity of a minister as a house builder. So what is a church? Church is a house. It's a temple. In Ephesians, Paul talks about you, you being living stones that are being built together. The, the nature then of Christianity is that God is making you a living stone that he's stacking next to other living stones um, that you can actually look around. And this, this is all just kind of a fog or a, an idea. It's actually tangible in this room. You look around and what God is put together this morning in this room is a bunch of living stones being built up together that are a temple of the Holy Spirit, a place where God himself dwells. Your house. That's what it means. That's what the nature of Christianity is, is that you are a people redeemed by God, made alive by God, and now being knit together in a community, in a church, such that it can become a place where God himself dwells, where his name dwells, where his glory dwells, where his mercy is on offer to the world, where the beauty and the authority of God's reign is put on display in the world. And ministers are means by, we're subcontractors building and doing what, what God has called and equipped and, and, and told us to build. And we're called to build with the, the actual materials that God's given us to build with. And if we don't, the consequences are dire. And so if we build with faulty doctrine, if we build with questionable exegesis, if we build um, on kind of the foundation of like, say, human psychology or, or the best cultural insights or, or sociology, with kind of um, maybe tipping our hat to the Bible or tipping our hat to um, kind of a reduced understanding of what the scriptures teach, then the Bible describes that as faulty building. We're not building with the, the full range of the materials that God has told us to build with, namely the scriptures. And the consequence of doing that when difficulty comes, when pressure comes, when society gets really wonky and weird, like the last few years, the consequences of that will be houses that become malformed, collapse, um, get, get swept into the sea, get burned up with fire. They don't stand. Um, and, and Paul, in his, his letter to the Corinthians, as he's describing this to the ministers of God, he's saying, like, this will be devastating to you as you watch it happen. Okay, so those are the three metaphors. What are ministers? The, these... Um, Officers given authority in and over the local church. That they are shepherds of someone else's flock. They are stewards of someone else's vineyard. They are builders of someone else's house. I mean, it is God's flock. It is God's vineyard. It is God's house. Now, let's just go to Titus now. That was your introduction. <laughs> it's going to be a quick sermon though, I promise. Um, I want us to go to Titus now and just look at this whole text. There's a million things that we could look, not literally a million, there's probably a hundred. A hundred things we could look at in this text, lots and lots of different sermons to look at here. Um, uh, Whether it's talking about how older men and younger men are to live in the world, or older women and younger women are to live in the world. Um, Whether it's talking about 
um, the nature of the circumcision party and all the different things going on, um, we, we could really spend a lot of time on um, this chapter and a half, it's actually almost two chapters um, of Titus. But instead of doing that, I actually want to like just kind of buzz over the top of it and look at kind of three groupings um, of ideas in this text. And so um, I first want to kind of lay out the background. Paul is writing to a man named Titus, uh, a man he probably discipled, a man he probably led to, even maybe led to the Lord in Crete. Um, and uh, he's left behind in Crete in what we could basically say is a mess. Um, it seems like there's groups of Christians in the cities all around the island of Crete um, and, uh, and not much structure, not much leadership, um, not much by way of then fruit that's being born um, in these churches, in these cities um, all around Crete. Um, one thing you should know about Crete, uh, and this is, um, we can actually find this in other uh, Roman and Greek poets, um, is that Crete is, in fact, that Paul quotes a Greek uh, here in describing the nation, the, the nature of the Cretans, um, is that these people are, um, they like to kind of pull you, pull the wool over your eyes to get kind of their own personal gain. Um, and so when it says here that they're liars and lazy gluttons and evil beasts, um, I love this little verse because it kind of gives you permission to make sweeping generalizing statements about people. So, like, you can make sweeping, generalizing statements about, like, Texans <laughs> or those people from Louisiana or wherever. So, so um, he makes one of those statements about Cretans, and it seems to be true, pretty broadly recognized by, well, everybody who knew who the Cretans were. Everybody was like, man, you know how the Cretans are. They're lazy gluttons, and they are liars, um, and they will take your wallet, um, and they're evil beasts. So... Uh, so that's kind of what's going on in Crete, but praise God, um, the gospel's been preached there. There seems to be Christians in the cities all around the island um, of Crete, and there is also a mess. There's not a whole lot of organization, um, and there's false teachers that are arising. We see that um, there in verse 10 of chapter 1, um, and uh, kind of the main false teaching that's beginning to become pervasive uh, throughout the Roman Empire at that time is kind of this, uh, what I would uh, basically call, there's two sides of it. Um, one would be uh, kind of a proto-Gnosticism. Um, it's this idea that uh, following God, knowing God, salvation is um, primarily an intellectual idea. It's not tangible. Um, therefore, obedience to God or righteousness or, or doing the will of God um, primarily has to do with knowing stuff or experiencing stuff. Uh, um, not a lot to do with how you live out your tangible life, practical life in the world. Doesn't have a whole lot to do with how your, what your marriage looks like. Doesn't have a whole lot to do with um, what you eat or don't eat. Doesn't have a whole lot to do with how you speak to one another. Um, it's primarily or almost exclusively something you feel or know. And then on the other side of it, um, um, kind of arising out of Judaism. Um, in fact, this was a pattern that, that ensued uh, kind of throughout Paul's mission. Paul would go preach the gospel, see a church established. He'd leave, in would come the Judaizers or the circumcision party, and they would come proclaiming a hyper-vigilant, extra-biblical law. In other words, um, they were kind of the opposite of those proto-Gnostics. Um, they would come and say, hey, Paul got you this far, you've believed in Jesus, um, you've begun to walk according to God's ways and to understand um, the, 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 law, the commands of God and the law of Christ. Um, now we want to kind of complete your faith by giving you a whole bunch more stuff that you need to do. 
And so you had kind of those teachings infecting the church, and there's evidence um, in the book of Titus uh, that both of those things are present. Both of those things are wreaking havoc in the life of the church. And so into that situation, um, Paul says, hey, Titus, this is why I left you there. I left you behind, is I want you to bring order to this chaos. Now, how are you going to bring order to the chaos of cities, a culture that, that is problematic because there's lazy gluttons and evil beasts and liars, always liars. Um, and you got these false teachers arising, kind of showing up, teaching false doctrines um, to these Christians in all these cities. Um, Titus, um, I left you there to fix this. How is he supposed to fix it? Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So establish... In these churches, elders, ministers, um, and they are to be, uh, we're going to see now, they're to look a certain way. They're supposed to, there needs to be certain characteristics about them. And then two, they're called to then do something very specific. In other words, um, the work of bringing order to this is um, uh, a long task that has to be accomplished through delegated authority, namely Appointing elders in these cities. So first, what must an elder be like? Uh, so he begins there in verse 5. Sorry, verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and he's not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Um, that's kind of the, the negative, like he's, he's naming their vices that he should avoid. Um, but even before he gets into the vices, they're prerequisites. And by kind of bridging this with texts in 1 Timothy, um, texts in uh, 1 Peter, uh, what we find is prerequisites are um, an elder is to be a man. He's to be a one-woman man is, is the um, translation here and in 1 Timothy. Um, and this doesn't um, probably primarily have to do with, say, uh, polygamy, which was very, very rare in this day. Um, in that day, although it would include that, it primarily has to do with sexual purity, which is an interesting thing that this comes up again and again and again, that, that um, the, the man who is called to the office of elder must be a man who's sexually pure. Um, that, that's, it's just something that's named almost every single time any sort of list of qualifications for an elder is given. They must belong to one woman, not many women. And so he's to be the husband of one wife. Uh, he's to be a one-woman man. In other words, sexually pure man. And two, that his children are in the faith. His children um, are, are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination in particular. Uh, his children should not be in rebellion to um, uh, his, the, the, the faith um, delivered to them um, and the rule of their father. So those are kind of prerequisites laid out for us here for an elder to be. But let's look at the vices in particular. There's a lot of emphasis here on self-control, non-compulsivity. Um, this isn't a man who uh, quickly lashes out in anger. He's slow to anger. Um, again, there's, there's a place for anger in the ministry of an elder or a pastor. But he not, better not be one who rushes to get angry, rushes to lash out. He needs to be marked by self-control. He needs to be marked by hospitality. This is a person who 
um, is marked by self-control, is marked by opening his home to others often. His children who believe, he's sexually faithful to his wife. He's not quick-tempered. He's not a drunkard. He's not violent. He's not greedy for gain. One of the biggest signs of a problem is when you have a man who is greedy to gain something, but rather he's hospitable, he's generous, he um, loves that which is good, he celebrates that which is good, he's self-controlled, he's upright, he's holy, he's disciplined. And he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. We're going to move to that in just a second. Um, But I want to take just a second to say that when you have a model of church that I described earlier, um, the kind of the fast food restaurant model of church, then a minister becomes the one who can merely serve you or the largest group of people the best burger imaginable. Which is one of the things, one of the patterns we've seen kind of unfold within American evangelicalism over the last 30 years. Right? Like the ministers, the ministers, a lot of the ministers who are most celebrated, most well-known in our culture aren't uh, men who are known for their shepherding, known for their com- radical commitment to the scriptures and to teach the scriptures and to expound the scriptures and to shepherd with the scriptures. They're the ones that are really, really good at serving up a, a perfectly cooked burger on, on a well-designed plate with the fries all lined up in the right way and a little swirl with the ketchup in the right-hand corner um, and, and it being exactly what everybody wants. And then when it comes out that these men are quick-tempered, when it comes out that these men aren't sexually faithful, when it comes out that these men were greedy for gain, we wonder why. Well, it's because we've built a model of church that rewards ministers who, who, aren't, who don't look like this, but who are driven by how do I get the right kind of food that most people are going to like in front of these people. And it draws people, it draws people into ministry who aren't committed to these kinds of things. Like the answer to who a good pastor is, is not who's the flashiest preacher. The answer to who a good minister is, is not, hey, who's the one that can um, put on the greatest worship experience? I mean, that's also, by the way, where a lot of churches uses the title of worship experience for their Sunday services. That, 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 that's built around this idea that you're coming to get the food you want. Um, that this isn't a primarily a body being built together. In other words, the the minister um, isn't built around these kinds of virtues and vices as listed here um, by Paul in his letter to Timothy. Instead, they're built by who can attract the most number of people. Um, They're not seen as builders. They're not seen as gardeners. They're not seen as shepherds. They're seen primarily as charismatic, attractive people. I've never been much um, in danger of being called attractive. Um, But but I I do feel the constant pull as a minister to say, 
how do I get more people to like what we're serving? Rather than saying like, no, how do we build a thing faithfully and virtuously that, that I wouldn't be a man, that none of our elders would be men who are greedy for gain, whether that's wealth or gaining notoriety, but whatever gain you, you might use the ministry to seek, but rather how do we faithfully build here? How do we faithfully shepherd here? How do we faithfully tend to God's garden here? And in the foundation of all of this, in, that we see there in verse 9, and I want you to, if you mark stuff, mark this. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The foundation for the kind of building or the way that a ministers of God are to shepherd God's people build up God's people and to tend to God's people is the word of God, is the word of the testimony um, that's given to us in this book. This is what we use. We're not primarily driven by or defined by using other things. We are driven by and compelled to hold fast to this word. Um, The fundamental question I mean, in addition to all of the virtues and vices listed here for the men who are called to eldership is, do they hold fast? Do they cling to with all of their life the word of God? Is their treasure, their hope, um, their um, understanding of, they're seeking to understand everything about the world, everything about their life, everything about people grounded in a commitment to constantly be holding fast to, clinging to um, this book. They're therefore seeking to understand it, to be shaped by it, um, to let it sit in judgment over them, um, to be compelled by it, to be moved by it, to worship in light of it, to sing in light of it, to counsel in light of it, to preach in light of it, to teach in light of it, that this book would be the foundation stone of all those who would be ministers and elders in this church. This is what we build with. This is the only authority we've been given um, uh, by which to lead you, to care for you, to shepherd you, to counsel you, to discipline you, to exhort you. In other words, if I come to you and start um, demanding of you as a, as a member of our congregation and a lot of Hebrews 13 submit to me and I start telling you something that is not grounded in growing directly out from this book, you should not listen to me. If I ever stand up here and preach something that is foreign to this book, you should not listen to me. If our elders ever begin to adopt ideas or postures or notions about whether it's the nation of notion of justice, or the nature of salvation or justification, whatever the thing is, um, from outside of this book, you listen, please listen to me. You should confront us and then you should leave. My authority and the authority of our elders to shepherd you is grounded in and only grounded in so far as we cling to and hold fast to the word of God. This is what we lead with and lead on and exhort with and exhort on. We're called to teach and we're also called, I'm called to rebuke. This rebuking grows out of the fact that, that fundamentally 
um, the two errors that I described earlier that constantly kind of went everywhere in the early church, first century church, those two errors showed up over and over and over again. And guess what? The same two errors keep showing up. They sneak in through side, side doors. They sneak in through all kinds of different ways. But they always fundamentally show up in one of two ways. Like um, just unfaithfulness to Jesus and the, the, the wolves that, um, that the shepherds are called to kill, to get out of here. They show up always in one of two ways. First, and, and all of us in this room, by the way, are prone to one of these two errors. The first is those who would bring to bear on the people of God rules and regulations and measures and standards of righteousness that are not given to us by God in the Bible. Have you been in churches like that? Are you prone to do that? Are you prone to do that to yourself? Like the the call of God's shepherds in this church is to kill that, to go to war with that. Our authority is God and God's law, not God's law plus list of personal priorities. Human tradition. Sociological insights. Whatever the thing is. By the way, this is not like a left thing or a right thing. It's a left and right. It's a human thing. The human temptation to create standards of righteousness that go beyond the gospel and the law of God. On the other side, the other temptation that some of you are particularly prone to is this this kind of Gnosticizing of Christianity. To, to, To say that um, the actual tangible cultural embodiment of the gospel and embodiment of obedience to Jesus is unnecessary. Some of that sounds like, hey, just teach me great doctrine. I want to think really cool, ambiguous thoughts about life in the world. Don't talk to me about marriage. Don't talk to me about my job. Don't talk to me about how to raise my kids. Don't talk to me about Sabbath. Don't talk to me about... Um, uh, real cultural issues. Please don't ever talk about abortion. Don't talk about racial justice. Don't talk about any of that stuff. Um, just keep it kind of like cool Jewish background stuff. And then some like, you know, good doctrine. That's where Christianity belongs. Make me feel good and smart. That, God commands the shepherds of God's people to snipe that. Y'all ever been sniping? Shoot it. Sometimes with BB guns, sometimes with a bow and arrow, but to get rid of it. In other words, we never, ever, ever go beyond the law of God. If I ever start dictating to you things that go beyond what's in the text, leave. If I ever stop short of the kind of obedience that is expressed in the text, I'm not doing what God has charged me to do. So, Shepherds of God's people are called to go to war with the same forms of false teaching that were there at the very beginning. This spiritualization or Gnosticization or kind of de-physicality, de-obey, disobedient faith that just kind of lives in your head and your heart to go to war with that and also to go to war with every legalistic impulse to add to the words of God. So we 
do those things. And third, we teach what accords with sound doctrine. So we teach sound doctrine and that, doc, that sound doctrine then adequately goes to war with those two, um, those two forms of false teaching, those two particular temptations that always seem to, for whatever reason, exist in the human heart. And then second, we teach what accords with sound doctrine, which is what he gets into in chapter two. And what you find there is just everything to do with living life on the ground. And this is where there's a whole bunch of sermons. I don't have time to preach this morning. I'm already out of time. But, but instructing older men how they're to live. I'm instructing older women. It's like he knew something. Like, don't be given over to too much wine. Like that wine before you go to bed, don't, don't drink too much of it. I was like, that's funny. Um, you guys aren't laughing. So it's either because I've gone too long or you don't really drink wine at night. <clears throat> um, I'm talk, talking about younger women, of like being committed to their homes and their families and prioritizing that. Like, like this is a doctrine. What accords with that doctrine um, are things that like, they're, they're not just kind of like pie in the sky, kind of high level theology about kind of eschatology and those things, which are wonderful. And I love to talk about them. It has to do with like, how do you raise your kids? How do you relate to your husband? How much wine can you drink at night? What kind of conversations should you be having with your friends and your roommates? What attitudes should be on display in your workplace? Like this is the task of the shepherd is to take the gospel, to take the teaching of God, to take the law of Christ, to take all of these things and to bring them to bear on the flock of God, on the life of God's people in the world such that they think rightly and faithfully and obediently about how to live in every single facet of their lives. This is the task of the shepherd. To what end? To, to, to describe there in verses 11 through 15, this description of a people waiting, marked by self-control, marked by love, marked by renouncing ungodliness and worldly lusts, marked by hope, a people longing and waiting for the appearing of Jesus Christ um, in which all things are made new. And the work of the shepherds that God has placed in this church um, over this flock um, is, to, is to see us shaped by the words of God, by the gospel of Jesus, by, um, by the hope of what has been promised to us in Christ, a world made do, new and us raised from the dead and sin and death put away forever that we might be right now in this moment, in this city, um, a testimony, a witness, a, a, a flock that bears witness to the goodness of Jesus, the grace of Jesus and the hope of his promises being absolutely and wholly fulfilled in this world. And as we do so, we are those, the under shepherds and the flock. We are all sheep, returning to the shepherd and the elder, the caretaker, the overseer of our souls, namely Jesus Christ. My job and the other elders um, and the other elders in this church, their job it is to be an image for you, a small, imperfect, limping image to you of the overseer of us, of our souls, the great shepherd, the one who shepherds us as a people towards our great hope of seeing and knowing and eating this feast with Jesus forever and ever 
and ever. And so we hold fast to this word, both because it tells us how to live, both because it tells us about the forgiveness of sins and the mercy of God. And we hold fast to this word because it holds out to us the glorious and beautiful and good promises of God. Promises that we as a people hope for and wait for even as we learn in this age how to trust God and therefore how to obey God slowly, imperfectly, um, oftentimes falling. But coming back week after week to, to hear from your shepherds, oh, I know you've fallen. I know you've sinned. Um, I know we had to kneel again this week and confess sins in the presence of God. But let me remind you again and again and again And may none of our elders grow tired of reminding you again and again and again. That if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Do you know that? That is my fundamental task as your pastor. I want to expound to you everything the word of God says. But most centrally, I'm to invite you week after week to kneel because all of you sinned this week. (laughs) You sinned in your attitudes, you sinned in your actions, you sinned in in disobedience to God. But to be, and what a privilege, to be called by God to stand in front of you and declare to you that in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. In Jesus Christ, you are welcomed home to God. In Jesus Christ, um, you're, you're cleansed of all your sins. Let's pray and prepare for communion.